0: Hi, everyone. This is your host, John Hagdorn, and this is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Damon Runyon, a New York City sports writer and author, rose to fame in the Prohibition era for his colorful stories which involved characters typical of the shady side of Brooklyn. Runyon's stories were always narrated by one of those nameless mobsters and always spoken in the present tense. This style became very popular in the movies in the 30s and 40s. The Three Stooges popularized Runyon's famous quote from his story, Wise guy, eh? And was one of the many expressions that were popularized during that era. When you hear someone saying runyon they're talking about his style of writing. His is a world of gangsters and hustlers and guys and dolls and followers with names like Harry the Hustler, Rusty Charlie, and Dream Street Rose. A gun is a Roscoe, money is scratch, and women are dolls or Judys or ever-loving wives. We did an episode a few years ago called Three Wise Men, and it's done very well since. I think we owe Damon Runyon a few more looks. We have two stories for you today. The first is Blood Pressure by Damon Runyon. And now, Blood Pressure. It is maybe 11.30 of a Wednesday night, and I'm standing at the corner of 48th Street and 7th Avenue, thinking about my blood pressure, which is a proposition I never before think much about. In fact, I never hear my blood pressure before this Wednesday afternoon when I go around to see Doc Brennan about my stomach, and he puts a gag on my arm and tells me that my blood pressure is higher than a cat's back, and the idea is for me to be careful about what I eat and to avoid excitement, or I may pop off all of a sudden when I am least expecting it. A nervous man such as you with blood pressure away up in the paint cards must live quietly, Doc Brennan says. Ten bucks, please. Well, I'm standing here thinking it is not going to be so tough to avoid excitement the way things are around this town right now, and I'm wishing I have my ten bucks back to bet it on Sun Bo in the fourth race at Pimlico the next day, when all of a sudden I look up, and who's in front of me? But Rusty Charlie. Now, if I have any idea Rusty Charlie's coming my way, you can go and bet all the coffee in Java I will be somewhere else at once, for Rusty Charlie is not a guy I wish to have any truck with whatever. In fact, I wish no part of him. Furthermore, nobody else in this town wishes to have any part of Rusty Charlie, for he's a hard guy indeed. In fact, there are no harder guys anywhere in the world. He is a big wide guy with two large hard hands and a great deal of very bad disposition and thinks nothing of knocking people down and stepping on their kissers if he feels like it. In fact, this Rusty Charlie is what is called a gorilla because he is known to often carry a gun in his pants pocket and sometimes to shoot people down as dead as doornails with it if he does not like the way they wear their hats. And Rusty Charlie is very critical of hats. The chances are Rusty Charlie shoots many a guy in this man's town, and those he does not shoot he sticks with his shiv, which is a knife, and the only reason he is not in jail is because he just gets out of it, and the law does not have time to think up something to put him back again for. Anyway, the first thing I know about Rusty Charlie being in my neighborhood is when I hear him saying, Well, 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 here we are. Then he grabs me by the collar, so it is no use of me thinking of taking it on the lamb away from there, although I greatly wish to do so. "'Hello, Rusty,' I say, very pleasant. "'What is the score?' "'Everything's about even,' Rusty says. "'I'm glad to see you, because I'm looking for company. I'm over in Philadelphia for three days on business.' "'I hope and trust that you do all right for yourself in Philly, Rusty,' I say. "'But his news makes me very nervous, because I'm a great hand for reading the papers,' and I have a pretty good idea what Rusty's business in Philly is. It is the only day before that I see a little item from Philly in the papers about how gloomy Gus Smallwood, who is a very large operator in the alcohol business there, is guzzled right at his front door. Of course, I do not know that Rusty Charlie is the party who guzzles gloomy Gus Smallwood, but Rusty Charlie is in Philly when Gus is guzzled, and I can put two and two together as well as anybody. It is the same thing as if there is a bank robbery in Cleveland, Ohio, "'and Rusty Charlie is in Cleveland, Ohio, or near there. "'So I am very nervous, "'and I figure it is a sure thing my blood pressure is going up every second. "'How much dough you got on you?' Rusty says. "'I'm plumb broke.' "'I do not have more than a couple of bobs, Rusty,' I say. "'I pay a doctor ten bucks today to find out my blood pressure is very bad. "'But, of course, you are welcome to what I have.' "'Well, a couple of bobs is no good to high-class guys like you and me,' Rusty says let us go to Nathan Detroit's crap game and win some money. Now, of course, I do not wish to go to Nathan Detroit's crap game, and if I do wish to go there, I do not wish to go with Rusty Charlie, because a guy is sometimes judged by the company he keeps, especially around crap games, and Rusty Charlie is apt to be considered bad company. Anyway, I do not have any dough to shoot craps with, and if I do have dough to shoot craps with, I will not shoot craps with it at all, but will bet it on Sun bow or maybe take it home and pay off some of the overhead around my joint, such as rent. Furthermore, I remember what Doc Brennan tells me about avoiding excitement, and I know there's apt to be excitement around Nathan Detroit's crap game if Rusty Charlie goes there, and maybe run my blood pressure up and cause me to pop off very unexpected. In fact, I already feel my blood jumping more than some would inside me. But naturally, I am not going to give Rusty Charlie any argument. So, we go to Nathan Detroit's crap game this crap game is over a garage in 52nd street this particular night though sometimes it is over a restaurant in 47th street or in the back of a cigar store in 44th street in fact nathan detroit's crap game is apt to be anywhere because it moves around every night as there's no sense in a crap game staying in one spot until the coppers find out where it is so nathan detroit moves his crap game from spot to spot and citizens wishing to do business with him have to ask where he is every night and of course almost everybody on broadway knows this as Nathan Detroit has guys walking up and down and around and about, telling the public his address and giving out the password for the evening. Well, Jack the Beefer is sitting in an automobile outside the garage in 52nd Street when Rusty Charlie and I come along, and he says, Kansas City, very low, as we pass, this being the password for the evening. But we do not have to use any password whatever when we climb the stairs over the garage, because the minute Solid John, the doorman, peeks out through his peephole when we knock, and sees Rusty Charlie with me, he opens up very quick indeed, and gives us a big castor oil smile, for nobody in this town is keeping doors shut on Rusty Charlie for very long. It is a very dirty room over the garage, and full of smoke, and the crap game is on an old pool table, and around the table, and packed in so close, you cannot get a knitting needle between any two guys with a maul. And all the high shots are in town, for there's plenty of money around at this time, and many citizens are very prosperous.' Furthermore, I wish to say there are some very tough guys around the table, too, including guys who will shoot you in the head, or maybe the stomach, and think nothing whatever about it. In fact, when I see such guys as Harry the Horse from Brooklyn, and Out Sam Levinsky, and Lone Louie from Harlem, I know this is a bad place for my blood pressure, for those are very tough guys indeed, and are known as such to one and all in this town. But there they are wedged up against the table with Nick the Greek, Big Nig, Grey John, O.K. Oaken, and many other high shots, and they all have big coarse G-notes in their hands, which they're tossing around back and forth as if these G-notes are nothing but pieces of waste paper. On the outside of the mob at the table are a lot of small operators who are trying to cram their fists in between the high shots now and then to get down a bet, and there are also guys present who are called Shylocks because they will lend you dough when you go broke at the table on watches or rings or maybe cufflinks at a very good interest. Well, as I say... "'There's no room at the table for as many as one more very thin guy "'when we walk into the joint, "'but Rusty Charlie lets out a big hello as we enter, "'and the guys all look around, "'and the next minute there's a space at the table big enough "'not only for Rusty, but for me too. "'It really is quite magical the way there is suddenly room for us "'when there is no room whatever for anybody else when we come in. "'Who is the gunner?' Rusty Charlie asks, looking all around. "'Why, you are, Charlie,' Big Nig, the stick man in the game, "'says very quick.' handing Charlie a pair of dice, although afterward I hear that his pal is right in the middle of a roll trying to make nine when we step up to the table. Everybody's very quiet, just looking at Charlie. Nobody pays any attention to me, because I'm known to one and all as a guy who's just around, and nobody figures me in on any part of Charlie, although Harry the Horse looks at me once in a way that I know is no good for my blood pressure, or for anybody else's blood pressure, as far as that goes. Well, Charlie takes the dice and turns to a little guy in a derby hat who's standing next to him scrooching back so Charlie will not notice him and Charlie lifts the derby hat off the little guy's head and rattles the dice in his hand and chucks them into the hat and goes ha like crapshooters always do when they're rolling the dice then Charlie peeks into the hat and says 10 although he does not let anybody else look in the hat not even me so nobody knows if Charlie throws a 10 or what but of course nobody around there is going to up and doubt that rusty Charlie throws a 10 because Charlie may figure it is the same thing as calling him a liar and Charlie is such a guy as is apt to hate being called a liar. Now, Nathan Detroit's crap game is what is called a head and head game, although some guys call it a fading game, because the guys bet against each other rather than against the bank or house. It is just the same kind of game as when two guys get together and start shooting craps against each other, and Nathan Detroit does not have to bother with a regular crap table and layout such as they have in gambling houses. In fact, about all Nathan Detroit has to do with a game is to find a spot Furnish the dice and take his percentage, which is by no means bad. In such a game as this, there is no real action until a guy is out on a point, and then the guys around commence to bet he makes this point, or that he does not make this point, and the odds in any country in the world that a guy does not make a 10 with a pair of dice before he rolls 7 is 2 to 1. Well, when Charlie says he rolls 10 in the derby hat, nobody opens their trap, and Charlie looks all around the table, and all of a sudden he sees Jude Louis at one end, although Jew Louis seems to be trying to shrink himself up when Charlie's eyes light on him. I'll take the odds for five C's, Charlie says, and Louie, you get it, meaning he is letting Louis bet him 1,000 to 500 that he does not make his 10. Now Jew Louis is a small operator at all times and more of a shylock than he is a player, and the only reason he's up there against the table at all at this moment is because he moves up to lend Nick the Greek some dough. And ordinarily, there is no more chance of Jew Louis betting a thousand to five hundred on any proposition whatever than there is of him giving his dough to the Salvation Army, which is no chance at all. It is a sure thing he will never think of betting a thousand to five hundred a guy will not make ten with the dice, and when Rusty Charlie tells Louis he has such a bet, Louis starts trembling all over. The others around the table do not say a word, and so Charlie rattles the dice again in his Duke, blows on them, and chucks them into the derby hat, and says, "Ha!" but of course, nobody can see in the derby hat except Charlie, and he peeks in at the dice and says, five. He rattles the dice once more and chucks them into the derby and says, ha, and then after peeking into the hat at the dice, he says, eight. I am commencing to sweat for fear he may heave a seven in the hat and blow his bet, and I know Charlie has no five C's to pay off with, although of course, I also know Charlie has no idea of paying off, no matter what he heaves. On the next chuck, "'Charlie yells, "'Money,' meaning he finally makes his ten, "'although nobody sees it but him, "'and he reaches out his hand to Jew Louis, "'and Jew Louie hands him a big fat G-note, very, very slow. "'In all my life I never see a sadder-looking guy than Louis "'when he's parting with his dough. "'If Louis has any idea of asking Charlie "'to let him see the dice in the hat to make sure about the ten, "'he does not speak about it, "'and as Charlie does not seem to wish to show the ten around, "'nobody else says anything either.' probably figuring Rusty Charlie isn't a guy who's apt to let anybody question his word, especially over such a small matter as a ten. Well, Charlie says, putting Louis G.'s note in his pocket, I think this is enough for me tonight. And he hands the derby hat back to the little guy who owns it and motions me to come on, which I'm glad to do, as the silence in the joint is making my stomach go up and down inside me, and I know this is bad for my blood pressure. Nobody as much as opens his face from the time we go in until we start out. "'and you will be surprised how nervous it makes you "'to be in a big crowd with everybody dead still, "'especially when you figure it a spot "'that is liable to get hot any minute. "'It is only just as we get to the door "'that anybody speaks, "'and who is it but Jew Louis "'who pipes up and says to Rusty Charlie like this? "'Charlie,' he says, "'do you make it the hard way?' "'Well, everybody laughs, "'and we go on out, "'but I never hear myself "'whether Charlie makes his ten with a six and a four or with two fives, which is the hard way to make a ten with the dice, although I often wonder about the matter afterward. I'm hoping that I can now get away from Rusty Charlie and go on home, because I can see he is the last guy in the world to have around blood pressure, and furthermore, that people may get the wrong idea of me if I stick around with him, but when I suggest going to Charlie, he seems to be hurt. Why, Charlie says, you're a fine guy to be talking of quitting a pal just as we're starting out you will certainly stay with me because I like company, and we will go down to Ikey the Pigs and play Stuss. Ikey's an old friend of mine, and I owe him a complimentary play. Now, of course, I do not wish to go to Ikey the Pigs, because it is a place away downtown, and I do not wish to play Stuss, because this is a game which I'm never able to figure out myself, and furthermore, I remember Doc Brennan says I ought to get a little sleep now and then, "'But I see no use in hurting Charlie's feelings, "'especially as he is apt to do something drastic to me "'if I do not go. "'So he calls a taxi, "'and we start downtown for Ikey to Pigs, "'and the jockey who is driving the short "'goes so fast that it makes my blood pressure go up "'a foot to a foot and a half from the way I feel inside, "'although rusty Charlie pays no attention to the speed. "'Finally, I stick my head out of the window "'and ask the jockey to please take it a little easy, "'as I wish to get where I'm going all in one piece. "'But the guy only keeps busting along.' We're at the corner of 19th and Broadway when all of a sudden Rusty Charlie yells at the jockey to pull up a minute, which the guy does. Then Charlie steps out of the cab and says to the jockey like this, "'When a customer asks you to take it easy, why do you not be nice and take it easy? Now see what you get.' And Rusty Charlie hauls off and clips the jockey a punch on the chin that knocks the poor guy right off the seat into the street. And then Charlie climbs into the seat himself and away we go with Charlie driving, leaving the guy stretched out, stiff as a board.' Now Rusty Charlie once drives a short for a living himself, until the coppers get an idea that he's not always delivering his customers to the right address, especially such as might happen when he's drunk when he gets them. And he's a pretty fair driver, but he only looks one way, which is straight ahead. Personally, I never wish to ride with Charlie in a taxicab under any circumstances, especially if he's driving, because he certainly drives very fast. He pulls up a block from Ikey to Pigs and says we will leave the short there until somebody finds it and turns it in. "'But just as we are walking away from the short, "'up steps a copper in uniform "'and claims we cannot park the short in this spot without a driver. "'Well, Rusty Charlie just naturally hates to have coppers give him any advice. "'So what does he do but peek up and down the street "'to see if anybody's looking, "'and then haul off and clout the copper on the chin, "'knocking him bow-legged? "'I wish to say I never see a more accurate puncher than Rusty Charlie, "'because he always connects with that old button. "'As the copper tumbles, "'Rusty Charlie grabs me by the arm "'and starts me running up a side street.' "'and after we go about a block, we dodge into Ikey the Pigs. "'It is what is called a stuss-house, "'and many prominent citizens of the neighborhood are present playing stuss. "'Nobody seems any too glad to see Rusty Charlie, "'although Ikey the Pig lets on he's tickled half to death. "'This Ikey the Pig is a short, fat-necked guy "'who will look very natural at New Year's, "'undressed and with an apple in his mouth, "'but it seems he and Rusty Charlie are really old-time friends "'and think fairly well of each other in spots.' "'But I can see that Ikey the pig is not so tickled "'when he finds Charlie's there to gamble, "'although Charlie flashes his G-note at once "'and says he does not mind losing a little dough to Ikey "'just for old time's sake. "'But I judge Ikey the pig knows "'he is never going to handle Charlie G.'s note "'because Charlie puts it back in his pocket "'and it never comes out again, "'even though Charlie gets off loser-playing stuff right away. "'Well, at five o'clock in the morning, "'Charlie's stuck 130 G's, "'which is plenty of money, "'even when a guy's playing on his muscle.' And, of course, Ikey the pig knows there's no chance of getting even 130 cents off Rusty Charlie, let alone that many thousands. Everybody else is gone by this time, and Ikey wishes to close up. He is willing to take Charlie's marker for a million, if necessary, to get Charlie out. But the trouble is, in Stuss, a guy is entitled to get back a percentage of what he loses, and Ikey figures Charlie is sure to wish this percentage, even if he gives a marker, and the percentage will wreck Ikey's joint. Furthermore, Rusty Charlie says he will not quit loser under such circumstances because Ikey is his friend. So what happens but Ikey finally sends out and hires a cheater by the name of Dopey Goldberg, who takes to dealing the game, and at no time he has Rusty Charlie even by cheating in Rusty Charlie's favor. Personally, I do not pay much attention to the play, but grab myself a few winks of sleep in a chair in a corner, and the rest seems to help my blood pressure no little. In fact, I am not noticing my blood pressure at all, when Rusty Charlie and I get out of Ikey the Pigs, because I figure Charlie will let me go home, and I can go to bed. But although it is six o'clock, and coming on broad daylight when we leave Ikey's, Charlie is still full of zing, and nothing will do him, but we must go to a joint that is called the Bohemian Club. Well, this idea starts my blood pressure going again, because the Bohemian Club is nothing but a deadfall where guys and dolls go when there's positively no other place in town open, and it is run by a guy by the name of Knife O'Halloran, "'who comes from down around Greenwich Village "'and is considered a very bad character. "'It is well known to one and all "'that a guy is apt to lose his life "'in Nifo Halloran's any night, "'even if he does nothing more than drink "'Nifo o'Halloran's liquor. "'But Rusty Charlie insists on going there, "'so naturally I go with him, "'and at first everything is very quiet and peaceful, "'except that a lot of guys in dolls and dolls in evening clothes "'who wind up there after being in nightclubs all night "'are yelling in one corner of the joint.' Rusty Charlie and Knife O'Halloran are having a drink together out of a bottle which Knife carries in his pocket, so as not to get it mixed up with the liquor he sells his customers, and they're cutting up old touches of the time when they run with the Hudson Dusters together, when all of a sudden in comes four coppers in plain clothes. Now these coppers are off duty, and are meaning no harm to anybody, and are only wishing to have a dram or two before going home, and the chances are they will pay no attention to Rusty Charlie if he minds his own business, although of course they know who he is very well indeed. "'and will take great pleasure in putting the old sleeve on him "'if they only have a few charges against him, "'which they do not. "'So they do not give him a tumble. "'But if there's one thing Rusty Charlie hates, "'it's a copper, "'and he starts eyeing them from the minute they sit down at the table, "'and by and by I hear him say to Knife O'Halloran like this, "'Knife,' Charlie says, "'what's the most beautiful sight in the world?' "'I do not know, Charlie,' Knife says. "'What is the most beautiful sight in the world?' Four dead coppers in a row.' "'Charlie says. "'Well, at this I personally ease myself over toward the door, "'because I never wish to have any trouble with coppers, "'and especially with four coppers, "'so I do not see everything that comes off. "'All I see is rusty Charlie grabbing at the big foot "'which one of the coppers kicks at him, "'and then everybody seems to go into a huddle, "'and the guys and dolls in evening dress start squawking, "'and my blood pressure goes up to maybe a million. "'I get outside the door, but I do not go away at once, "'as anybody with any sense will do, but stand there listening to what's going on inside, which seems to be nothing more than a loud noise like ker-bump, ker-bump, ker-bump. I am not afraid there will be any shooting, because as far as Rusty Charlie is concerned, he is too smart to shoot any coppers, which is the worst thing a guy can do in his town, and the coppers are not likely to start any blasting because they will not wish it to come out that they are in a joint such as the Bohemian Club off-duty. So I figure they will all just take it out and pull in and hauling. Finally, the noise inside dies down, "'and by and by the door opens, "'and out comes Rusty Charlie, "'dusting himself off here and there with his hands, "'and looking very much pleased indeed. "'And though the door before it flies shut again, "'I catch a glimpse of a lot of guys stretched out on the floor. "'Furthermore, I can still hear guys and dolls hollering. "'Well, well,' Rusty Charlie says, "'I'm commencing to think you take the wind on me, "'and I'm just about to get mad at you, "'but here you are. "'Let us go away from this joint, "'because they're making so much noise inside, "'you cannot hear yourself think.' Let us go to my joint and make my old woman cook us up some breakfast, and then we can catch some sleep. A little ham and eggs will not be bad to take right now. Well, naturally ham and eggs are appealing to me no little at this time, but I do not care to go to Rusty Charlie's joint. As far as I am personally concerned, I have enough of Rusty Charlie to do me a long, long time, and I do not care to enter into his home life to any extent whatever, although to tell the truth, I am somewhat surprised to learn he has any such life. I believe I do once hear that Rusty Charlie marries one of the neighbor's children, and that he lives somewhere over on 10th Avenue in the 40s, but nobody really knows much about this, and everybody figures if it is true, his wife must lead a terrible dog's life. But while I do not wish to go to Charlie's joint, I cannot very well refuse a civil invitation to eat ham and eggs, especially as Charlie is looking at me in a very much surprised way, because I do not seem so glad, and I concede that it is not everyone that he invites to his joint. So I thank him, and say there is nothing I will enjoy more than ham and eggs such as his old woman will cook for us, and by and by we are walking along 10th Avenue up around 45th Street. It is still fairly early in the morning, and business guys are opening up their joints for the day, and little children are skipping along the sidewalks going to school and laughing teehee, and old dolls are shaking bedclothes and one thing or another out of the windows out of the tenement houses. But when they spot Rusty Charlie and me, everybody becomes very quiet indeed." and I can see that Charlie is greatly respected in his own neighborhood. The business guys hurry into their joints, and the little children stop skipping and tee-heeing and go tiptoeing along, and the old dolls yank in their noodles, and a great quiet comes to the street. In fact, about all you can hear is the heels of Rusty Charlie and me hitting on the sidewalk. There is an ice wagon with a couple of horses hitched to it standing in front of a store, and when he sees the horses, Rusty Charlie seems to get a big idea. He stops and looks the horses over very carefully, "'although as far as I can see, they're nothing but horses, "'and big and fat and sleepy-looking horses, at that. "'Finally, Rusty Charlie says to me like this. "'When I'm a young guy,' he says, "'I'm a very good puncher with my right hand, "'and often I hit a horse on the skull with my fist and knock it down. "'I wonder,' he says, "'if I lose my punch. "'The last copper I hit back there got up twice on me.' "'Then he steps up to one of the ice-wagon horses "'and hauls off and biffs it right between the eyes.' with a right-hand smack that does not travel more than four inches, and down goes old Mr. Horse to his knees, looking very much surprised indeed. I see many a hard puncher in my day, including Dempsey, when he really can punch, but I never see a harder punch than Rusty Charlie gives this horse. Well, the ice wagon driver comes busting out of the store all heated up over what happens to his horse, but he cools out the minute he sees Rusty Charlie and goes on back into the store, leaving the horse still taking account, while Rusty Charlie and I keep walking finally we come to the entrance of a tenement house that rusty charlie says is where he lives and in front of this house is a wop with a pushcart loaded with fruit and vegetables and one thing and another which rusty charlie tips over as we go into the house leaving the wop yelling very loud and maybe cussing us in wop for all i know i'm very glad personally we finally get somewhere because i can feel that my blood pressure's getting worse every minute i'm with rusty charlie we climb two flights of stairs and then charlie opens a door and we step into a room where there is a pretty little red-headed doll about knee-high to a fliver, and she looks as if she may just get out of the hay, because her red hair is flying around every which way on her head, and her eyes seem still gummed up with sleep. At first I think she's a very cute sight indeed, and then I see something in her eyes that tells me this doll, whoever she is, is feeling very hostile to one and all. Hello, Tootsie, Rusty Charlie says. How about some ham and eggs for me and my pal here? We're all tired out going around and about. Well, the little red-headed doll just looks at him without saying a word. She is standing in the middle of the floor with one hand behind her, and all of a sudden she brings this hand around, and what does she have in it but a young baseball bat, such as kids play ball with, and which cost maybe two bits. And the next thing I know I hear something go kerbap, and I see she smacks Rusty Charlie on the side of the noggin with the bat. Naturally, I am greatly horrified at this business, and figure Rusty Charlie will kill her at once, and then I will be in a jam for witnessing the murder, and will be held in jail several years, like all witnesses to everything in this man's town. But Rusty Charlie only falls into a big rocking chair in the corner of the room, and sits there with one hand on his head, saying, Now hold on, Tootsie! And, Wait a minute there, honey. I recollect hearing him say, We have company for breakfast. And then the little red-headed doll turns on me, and gives me a look such as I will always remember, although I smile at her very pleasant, and mention it's a nice morning. Finally she says to me like this, "'So you're the trambo who keeps my husband out all night, are you?' she says. "'And with this she starts for me, and I start for the door, "'and by this time my blood pressure's all out of whack, "'because I can see Mrs. Rusty Charlie is excited more than somewhat. "'I get my hand on the knob, and just then something hits me alongside the noggin, "'which I afterward figured must be the baseball bat, "'although I remember having a sneaking idea the roof caves in on me. "'How I get the door open I do not know, "'because I'm very dizzy in the head, and my legs are wobbling.' "'But when I think back over the situation, "'I remember going down a lot of steps very fast, "'and by and by the fresh air strikes me, "'and I figure I am in the clear. "'But all of a sudden I feel another strange sensation "'back in my head, "'and something goes plop against my noggin. "'And I figure at first that maybe my blood pressure "'runs up so high that it's squirting out the top of my bean. "'Then I peek around over my shoulder just once "'to see that Mrs. Rusty Charlie "'is standing beside the wap Peddler's cart, "'snatching fruit and vegetables of one kind or another "'off the cart, "'and chucking them at me. "'But what she hits me with the back of the head "'is not an apple, or a peach, or a rutabaga, or a cabbage, "'or even a cassava melon, "'but a brick bat that the Wop has on his cart "'to weight down the paper sacks in which he sells his goods. "'It is this brickbat which makes a lump on the back of my head so big "'that Doc Brennan thinks it's a tumor "'when I go to him the next day about my stomach, "'and I never tell him any different. "'But,' Doc Brennan says, "'when he takes my blood pressure again,' Hey, your pressure's down below normal now, and as far as it's concerned, you are in no danger whatsoever. It only goes to show what just a little bit of quiet living will do for a Guy, Doc Brennan says. Ten bucks, please. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. And now, Sense of Humor, by Damon Runyon. One night I am standing in front of Mindy's Restaurant on Broadway, thinking of practically nothing whatever, when all of a sudden I feel a very terrible pain in my left foot. In fact, this pain is so very terrible that it causes me to leap up and down like a bullfrog and to let out loud cries of agony, and to speak some very profane language, which is by no means my custom. Furthermore, I know Joe the Joker must be in the neighborhood, as Joe the Joker has the most wonderful sense of humor of anybody in this town and is always around giving people the hot foot and gives it to me more times than I can remember. In fact, I hear Joe the Joker invents the hot foot and it finally becomes a very popular idea all over the country. The way you give a hot foot is to sneak up behind some guy who is standing around thinking of not much and stick a paper match in his shoe between the sole and the upper along about where his little toe ought to be and then light the match. By and by, the guy will feel a terrible pain in his foot and will start stamping around, and hollering, and carrying on generally, and it's always the most comical sight, and a wonderful laugh to one and all, to see him suffer. No one in the world can give a hot foot as good as Joe the Joker, because it takes a guy who can sneak up very quiet on the guy who is to get the hot foot, and Joe can sneak up so quiet, many guys on Broadway are willing to lay you odds, that he can give a mouse a hot foot if you find a mouse that wears shoes. Furthermore, Joe the Joker could take plenty of care of himself in case the guy who gets the hot foot feels like taking the matter up, which sometimes happens, especially with guys who get their shoes made to order at 40 bobs per copy and do not care to have holes burned in these shoes. But Joe does not care what kind of shoes the guys are wearing when he feels like giving out hotfoots, And furthermore, he does not care who the guys are, although many citizens think he makes a mistake the time he gives a hot foot to Frankie Ferocious. In fact, many citizens are greatly horrified by this action and go around saying no good will come of it. This Frankie Ferocious comes from over in Brooklyn. "'where he's considered a rising citizen in many respects, "'and by no means a guy to give hot foots to, "'especially as Frankie Ferocious "'has no sense of humor whatsoever. "'In fact, he is always very solemn, "'and nobody ever sees him laugh, "'and he certainly does not laugh "'when Joe the Joker gives him a foot one day on Broadway "'when Frankie Ferocious is standing "'talking over a business matter "'with some guys from the Bronx. "'He only scowls at Joe "'and says something in Italian, "'and while I do not understand Italian, "'it sounds so unpleasant,' that I guarantee I will leave town inside of the next two hours if he says it to me. Of course, Frankie Ferocious's name is not really ferocious, but something in Italian, like Ferocio, and I hear he originally comes from Sicily, although he lives in Brooklyn for quite some years, and from a modest beginning he builds himself up until he's a very large operator in merchandise of one kind or another, especially alcohol. He's a big guy, maybe thirty-odd, and he has hair blacker than a yard up a chimney, and black eyes, and black eyebrows, and a slow way of looking at people. Nobody knows a whole lot about Frankie Ferocious, because he never has much to say, and he takes his time saying it, but everybody gives him plenty of room when he comes around, as there are rumors that Frankie never likes to be crowded. As far as I am concerned, I do not care for any part of Frankie Ferocious, because his slow way of looking at people always makes me nervous, and I'm always sorry Joe the Joker gives him a hot foot because I figure Frankie Ferocious is bound to consider it a most disrespectful action and hold it against everybody that lives on the island of Manhattan. But Joe the Joker only laughs when anybody tells him he's out of line in giving Frankie the Hotfoot, and says it is not his fault if Frankie has no sense of humor. Furthermore, Joe says he will not only give Frankie another hot foot if he gets a chance, but he will give Hotfoots to the Prince of Wales or Mussolini if he catches them in the right spot, although Regret, the horse player, states that Joe can have 20 to 1 any time that he will not give Mussolini any hotfoots and get away with it. Anyway, just as I suspect, there is Joe the Joker watching me when I feel the hot foot, and he's laughing very heartily. And furthermore, a large number of other citizens are also laughing heartily because Joe the Joker never sees any fun in giving people the hot foot unless others are present to enjoy the joke. Well, naturally, when I see who it is gives me the hot foot, I join in the laughter and go over and shake hands with Joe. And when I shake hands with him, there is more laughter, because it seems Joe has a hunk of Limburger cheese in his duke, and what I shake hands with is this Limburger. Furthermore, it is some of Mindy's Limburger cheese, and everybody knows Mindy's Limburger is very squashy, and also very loud. Of course, I laugh at this too, although to tell the truth, I will laugh much more heartily if Joe the Joker drops dead in front of me, because I do not like to be made the subject of laughter on Broadway." But my laugh is really quite hearty when Joe takes the rest of the cheese that is not on my fingers and smears it on the steering wheels of some automobiles parked in front of Mindy's, because I get to thinking of what the drivers will say when they start steering their cars. Then I get talking to Joe the Joker, and I ask him how things are up in Harlem, where Joe and his younger brother Freddy and several other guys have a small organization operating in beer, and Joe says things are as good as could be expected considering business conditions. Then I ask him how Rose is getting along this Rosa being Joe the Joker's ever-loving wife and personal friend of mine, as I know her when she is Rosa Midnight and is singing in the old hot box before Joe hauls off and marries her. Well, at this question, Joe the Joker starts laughing, and I can see that something appeals to a sense of humor, and finally he speaks as follows. Why, he says, do you not hear the news about Rosa? She takes the wind on me a couple of months ago for my friend Frankie Ferocious and is living in an apartment over in Brooklyn. "'Right near his house, although,' Joe says, "'Of course you understand I am telling you this "'only to answer your question "'and not to holler copper on Rosa.' "'Then he lets out another large, ha-ha, "'and in fact Joe the Joker keeps laughing "'until I'm afraid he will injure himself internally. "'Personally, I do not see anything comical "'in a guy's ever-loving wife taking the wind on him "'for a guy like Frankie Ferocious. "'So when Joe the Joker quiets down a bit, "'I ask him, what's funny about the proposition?' "'Why,' Joe says, I have to laugh every time I think of how the big grease bowl is going to feel when he finds out how expensive Rosa is. I do not know how many things Frankie Ferocious has running for him in Brooklyn, Joe says, but he better try to move himself on the mint if he wishes to keep Rosa going. Then he laughs again, and I consider it wonderful the way Joe is able to keep a sense of humor, even in such a situation as this. Although up to this time, I always think Joe is very daffy indeed about Rosa, who is a little doll, weighing maybe 90 pounds with her hat on, and quite cute. Now, I judge from what Joe the Joker tells me that Frankie Ferocious knows Rosa before Joe marries her and is always pitching to her when when she is singing in the hot box and even after she's Joe's ever-loving wife. Frankie occasionally calls her up, especially when he commences to be a rising citizen of Brooklyn, although, of course, Joe does not learn about these calls until later. And about the time Frankie Ferocious commences to be a rising citizen of Brooklyn, things begin breaking a little tough for Joe the Joker. And what with the Depression and all, and he has to economize on Rosa in spots, and if there's one thing Rosa cannot stand, it is being economized on. Along about now, Joe the Joker gives Frankie Ferocious the hot foot, and just as many citizens state at that time, it is a mistake, for Frankie starts calling Rosa up more than somewhat, and speaking of a nice place Brooklyn is to live in, which it is. At that, and between those boosts for Brooklyn and Joe the Joker's economy, Rosa Halls often takes a subway to Borough Hall, leaving Joe a note, "'telling him that if he does not like it, "'he knows what he can do. "'Well, Joe,' I say, after listening to his story, "'I always hate to hear of these little domestic difficulties "'among my friends, but maybe this is all for the best. "'Still, I feel sorry for you, "'if it will do you any good,' I say. "'Do not feel sorry for me,' Joe says. "'If you wish to feel sorry for anybody, "'feel sorry for Frankie Ferocious. "'And,' he says, "'if you can spare a little more sorrow, "'give it to Rosa.' And Joe the Joker laughs very hearty again and starts telling me about a little scatter that he has up in Harlem where he keeps a chair fixed up with electric wires so he can give anybody that sits down in it a nice jolt, which sounds very humorous to me at that, especially when Joe tells me how they turn on too much juice one night and almost kill Commodore Jake. Finally, Joe says he has to get back to Harlem, but first he goes to the telephone in the corner cigar store and calls up Mindy's and imitates a doll's voice and tells Mindy he is Peggy Joyce, or somebody, and orders 50 dozen sandwiches sent up at once to an apartment in West 72nd Street for a birthday party. Although, of course, there is no such number as he gives, and nobody there will wish 50 dozen sandwiches if there is such a number. Then Joe gets in his car and starts off, and while he's waiting for the traffic lights at 50th Street, I see citizens on the sidewalks making sudden leaps and looking around very fierce, and I know Joe the Joker is plugging them with pellets made out of tinfoil, which he fires from a rubber band hooked between his thumb and forefinger. Joe the Joker is very expert with this proposition, and it is very funny to see citizens jump, although once or twice in his life, Joe makes a miscue and knocks out somebody's eye. But it's all in fun, and shows you what a wonderful sense of humor Joe has. Well, a few days later, I see by the papers where a couple of Harlem guys Joe the Joker is mobbed up with are found done up in sacks over in Brooklyn. Very dead indeed. And the coppers say it's because they're trying to move in on a certain business enterprise that belongs to nobody but Frankie Ferocious. But, of course, the coppers do not say Frankie Ferocious put these guys in the sacks, because in the first place, Frankie will report them to headquarters if the coppers say such a thing about him, And in the second place, putting guys in sacks is strictly a St. Louis idea, and have a guy put in a sack properly, you have to send to St. Louis for experts in this matter. Now, putting a guy in a sack is not as easy as it sounds, and in fact, it takes quite a bit of practice and experience. To put a guy in a sack properly, you first have to put him to sleep, because naturally no guy is going to walk into a sack wide awake unless he's a plump sucker. Some people claim the best way to put a guy to sleep is to give him a sleeping powder of some kind and a drink. But real experts just tap the guy in the noggin with a blackjack, which saves the expense of buying the drink. Anyway, after the guy's asleep, you double him up like a pocket knife and tie a quarter of wire around his neck and under his knees. Then you put him in a gunny sack and leave him someplace. And by and by, when the guy wakes up and finds himself in a sack, naturally he wants to get out and the first thing he does is try to straighten out his knees. This pulls the cord around his neck up so tight that after a while, the guy's all out of breath. So then when somebody comes along and opens the sack, they find the guy dead, and nobody is responsible for this unfortunate situation. Because after all, the guy really commits suicide, because if he does not try to straighten out his knees, he may live to a ripe old age, if he recovers from the tap on the noggin. Well, a couple of days later, I see by the papers where three Brooklyn citizens are scragged as they're walking peaceably along Clinton Street, the scragging being done by some parties in an automobile who seem to have a machine gun, and the papers state that the citizens are friends of Frankie Ferocious, and that it is rumored the parties with the machine gun are from Harlem. I judge by this that there is some trouble in Brooklyn, especially as about a week after the citizens are scragged in Clinton Street, another Harlem guy is found done up in a sack like a Virginia ham near Prospect Park, And now, who is it but Joe the Joker's brother, Freddy? And I know Joe is going to be greatly displeased by this. By and by, it gets so nobody in Brooklyn will open as much as a sack of potatoes without first calling the gendarmes, for fear a pair of number eight shoes will jump out at them. Now, one night I see Joe the Joker, and this time he's all alone. And I wish to say, I'm willing to leave him all alone, because something tells me he is hotter than a stove. But he grabs me as I'm going past, so naturally I stop to talk to him, and the first thing I say is, how sorry I am about his brother. Well, Joe the Joker says, Freddy's always kind of a sap. Rosa calls him up and asks him to come over to Brooklyn to see her. She wishes to talk to Freddy about getting me to give her a divorce, Joe says, so she can marry Frankie Ferocious, I suppose. Anyway, he says, Freddy tells Commodore Jake why he's going to see her. Freddy always likes Rosa and thinks maybe he can patch it up between us. So, Joe says, he winds up in a sack. They get him after he leaves her apartment. I do not claim Rosa will ask him to come over if she has any idea he will be sacked, Joe says. But, he says, she is responsible. She is a bad luck doll. Then he starts to laugh, and at first I'm greatly horrified, thinking it is because something about Freddie being sacked strikes his sense of humor. When he says to me, like this, "'Say,' he says, "'I'm going to play a wonderful joke on Frankie Ferocious.' "'Well, Joe,' I say, "'you are not asking me for advice,' But I'm going to give you some free, gratis, for nothing. Do not play any jokes on Frankie Ferocious, as I hear he has no more sense of humor than a nanny goat. I hear Frankie Ferocious will not laugh, even if you have Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, Ed Wynn, and Joe Cook telling him jokes all at once. In fact, I say, I hear he's a tough audience. Oh, Joe the Joker says, he must have some sense of humor somewhere to stand for Rosa. I hear he is daffy about her. In fact, I understand she is the only person in the world he really likes and trusts, but I must play a joke on him, and I'm going to have myself delivered to Frankie Ferocious in a sack. Well, of course, I have to laugh at this myself, and Joe the Joker laughs with me. Personally, I'm laughing just at the idea of anybody having themselves delivered to Frankie Ferocious in a sack, and especially Joe the Joker, but of course, I have no idea Joe really means what he says. Listen, Joe says finally, A guy from St. Louis who is a friend of mine is doing most of the sacking for Freddy Ferocious. His name is Ropes McGonagall. In fact, Joe says, he's a very dear old pal of mine and has a wonderful sense of humor like me. Ropes McGonagall has nothing whatever to do with sacking Freddy, Joe says, and he's very indignant about it since he finds out Freddy is my brother, so he's anxious to help me play a joke on Frankie. Only last night, Joe says, Frankie Ferocious sends for Ropes and tells him he will appreciate it as a special favor if Ropes will bring me to him in a sack. I suppose, Joe says, that Frankie Ferocious hears from Rosa what Freddy's bound to tell her about my ideas on divorce. I have very strict ideas on divorce, Joe says, especially where Rosa's concerned. I will see her in what's-this before I ever do her and Frankie Ferocious such a favor as giving her a divorce. Anyway, Joe the Joker says, Ropes tells me about Frankie Ferocious propositioning him, "'So I send Ropes back to Frankie to tell him "'he knows I am to be in Brooklyn tomorrow night, "'and furthermore, Ropes tells Frankie "'that he will have me in a sack in no time. "'And so he will,' Joe says. "'Well, I say, personally, "'I see no percentage in being delivered "'to Frankie Ferocious in a sack, "'because as near as I can make out "'from what I read in the papers, "'there's no future for a guy in a sack "'that goes to Frankie Ferocious. "'What I cannot figure out,' I say, "'is where the joke on Frankie comes in. "'Why?' Joe the Joker says. The joke is, I will not be asleep in the sack, and my hands will not be tied, and in each of my hands I will have a John Roscoe, so when the sack is delivered to Frankie Ferocious, and I pop out blasting away, can you not imagine his astonishment? Well, I can imagine this, all right. In fact, when I get to thinking of the look of surprise that is bound to come to Frankie Ferocious's face when Joe the Joker comes out of the sack, I have to laugh, and Joe the Joker laughs right along with me. Of course, Joe says, Ropes McGonagall will be there to start blazing with me, in case Frankie Ferocious happens to have any company. Then Joe the Joker goes on up the street, leaving me still laughing, from thinking of how amazed Frankie Ferocious will be when Joe bounces out of the sack and starts throwing slugs around and about. I do not hear of Joe from that time to this, but I hear the rest of the story from very reliable parties. It seems that Ropes McGonagall does not deliver the sack himself after all, but sends it by an expressman to Frankie Ferocious's home. Frankie Ferocious recovers many sacks such as this in his time, because it seems that it is a sort of a passion with him to personally view the contents of the sacks and check up on them before they're distributed about the city. And, of course, Roe's McGonagall knows about this passion from doing so much sacking for Frankie. When the expressman takes the sack into Frankie's house, Frankie personally lugs it down into his basement, and there he outs with a big John Roscoe and fires six shots into the sack, because it seems Ropes McGonagall tips him off to Joe the Joker's plan to pop out of the sack and start blasting. I hear Frankie Ferocious has a very strange expression on his pan and is laughing the only laugh anybody ever hears from him when the gendarmes break in and put the arm on him for murder, because it seems that when Ropes McGonagall tells Frankie of Joe the Joker's plan, Frankie tells Ropes what he's going to do with his own hands before opening the sack. Naturally, Ropes speaks to Joe the Joker of Frankie's idea about filling the sack full of slugs, and Joe's sense of humor comes right out again. So, bound and gagged, but otherwise as right as rain in the sack that is delivered to Frankie Ferocious, is by no means Joe the Joker, but Rosa. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We always appreciate reviews, and we appreciate our Patreon supporters. For about the cost of a cup of blended coffee, you can help 1001 Stories make it to 2001 and you can start by going to patreon.com post slash 1001storiesnetwork.com Thank you all for being great listeners. Please do share our show with others. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.